Welcome to Breaking the Surface, where we break into a delicious beverage and also dive into the topic at hand. I'm one of your co-hosts, Taylor Kramer. I'm the owner and lead producer for Cold Shower Media. I'm Beth Milligan. I'm a journalist here in Traverse City. And I'm another friend. I am Anthony Weber, and I am a pastor and an ethics teacher, and I am something of a fashion icon when it comes to oversized sweaters. The point here is that we want to go beyond the talking points to get to the depths of what is happening in our world. It should also be said that this podcast is part of the Boardman Review Podcast Collective in collaboration with Cold Chart Media. The Podcast Collective aims to provide unique content curated by the Boardman Review, the creative culture and outdoor lifestyle journal of Northern Michigan. Welcome back to another episode of Breaking the Surface. Today's episode is going to be a little bit different. You're only going to hear two voices. Uh, Beth is actually traveling, and so um, we miss Beth. We wish her safe travels back, and we look forward to having her in studio with us again. So, Anthony, how uh, how are you doing, just in general? Uh, pretty good. Last Saturday, my wife and I did an M22 drive, which this is maybe a weird time of year to do it. But we decided to go to some of the different beach fronts to see what was happening with the ice and stuff like that. Turned out it was a really windy day and it was just gorgeous with the waves and the ice. I mean, freezing cold. And then we ended up in Frankfurt at Storm Cloud, which is always a great way to end a trip. So, yeah, it was a nice weekend. Hey, well, even though we're not sharing a beer right now, we can at least hear about your experience at Storm Cloud. So maybe they're the unofficial sponsor <laughs> for this yeah, episode. Yeah, my, my wife got a flight. And I got, oh man, I don't remember the name of it, but they were all delicious. I mean, this is always the case. Yeah. So yes, never had a bad experience there. Nor have I. They, they do it well. They do it well. Um, so today's conversation, and this is uh, spurring from an article that I had stumbled across on the athletic or the Atlantic, excuse me, and had sent to you and Beth to read. And it's titled conservatives and liberals are wrong about each other. And I thought that this would be an appropriate conversation as we're still at the beginning of the new year. I think people are really having a difficult time still figuring out how to have a discourse in a society where you're probably not well known and you don't know very well the people on the other side of the spectrum or on the other side of this conversation and trying to figure out how do we have discourse and conversation when we don't feel accurately represented to the other side. And so what I'd like to do is just read through about 80% of this article. It's not too long. And then from there, I know that you found some additional resources. I think we can just have a good conversation of maybe what 2022 uh, could look like for us as we seek to have, have discourse. Yeah. Sounds good, Taylor. So uh, conservatives and liberals are wrong about each other. New research shows that Americans on both sides of the political spectrum overestimate how radical the other side is. Hard to believe. Uh, Every movement contains a range of viewpoints from moderate to extreme. Unfortunately, Americans on each side of the political spectrum believe incorrectly that hardliners dominate the opposite camp. After the killing of George Floyd last year, for example, Liberal protesters across the nation pushed for criminal justice reform, and many of the specific changes they sought enjoyed a lot of popular support. Even recent polls have shown that, regardless of political affiliation, most Americans remain in favor of police accountability measures. So things like body cameras, a registry of police misconduct, the banning of chokeholds, and tackling racial injustices head on. Some activists went much further, though, demanding the complete elimination of police departments. 
Conservative pundits noticed. Soon, the Fox News host Tucker Carlson was presenting call after vivid call to abolish or radically defund policing. They would like to eliminate all law enforcement for good, he told viewers. But supporters of police abolition are the exception, not the rule on the American left, according to research from this author as well as some of her colleagues. In late October 2020, they asked more than 1,000 people in the United States whether they agreed that police departments are irreversibly broken and racist, so the government needs to get rid of them completely. Only 28% of the self-described liberals even somewhat agreed, indicating that this was not a solid consensus on the left. Although far out of step with what most liberals actually thought, Carlson's sampling of liberal views was emblematic of what conservatives believed about liberals. Conservatives in our sample estimated that 61% of liberals, more than twice the actual number, endorsed the abolition of law enforcement. This is a striking example of what plagues our politics, a false polarization in which one side excoriates the other for views that, that it largely does not hold. Left-leaning readers might not be surprised that conservatives would accept as widespread a caricature of the radical liberal, given that they are so clearly blinded by racism or pro-police sentiment that they would excuse even the most unjust excesses of force. But wait, is this portrayal of conservatives accurate? No, it isn't. Just as liberals came to rally around Black Lives Matter, conservatives gravitated to Blue Lives Matter. From the vocal conservatives who made excuses for misconduct or blamed victims, some liberal commentators concluded that the right is dominated by police apologists. In fact, many on the right recognize both the humanity and hardship of police officers and those that are harmed by them. When we ask conservatives if police were almost always justified in their shootings of black people, only 31% of respondents even somewhat agreed with the sentiment. Liberals, on the other hand, estimated nearly double that number of conservatives. 57% gave police a free pass. The gap that we identified between what partisans really think and what their opponents think they think shows up again and again, but only on a particular kind of issue. People have a more accurate view of the other side's position on standard policy issues such as taxes or health care. But specifically on culture war issues, partisans are likely to believe a caricatured version of the opposing side's attitudes. These misconceptions have hardened into enduring stereotypes, liberal snowflake, snowflakes and free speech police, conservative racists and deplorables. In reality, just a third of liberal participants agreed even a little with banning controversial public speakers from college campuses. But conservatives estimated that 63% of liberals held that view. Only 22% of conservatives expressed hostile and unwelcoming attitudes toward immigrants, but liberals thought that 57% of them did. Our data suggests that many people walking around with an exaggerated mental representation of what other Americans stand for. People's perceptions of others are powerful, even when they're wrong. We found that people disliked their opponents primarily for the fringe views most opponents didn't actually hold. Worse still, partisans who disliked their opponents most were least willing to engage with them, which likely forecloses the chance to have their misconceptions corrected through real-life personal contact. Instead, an oversimplified, exaggerated version of the other side's views is allowed to live on inside of everyone's head. What's more, partisans told us they were hesitant to voice their opinions about the most extreme positions expressed by people on the same side of the spectrum. For example, liberals were less keen to talk publicly about the downsides of censoring free speech than they were to talk about the benefits of universal health care. So although a majority of liberals opposed censorship, their reluctance to criticize it openly 
might have led conservatives to think that most on the left actually favored it. So what should politically minded Americans conclude from our research? That we should hold hands in the center? Nope. Some policies and some partisans deserve forceful opposition, even contempt from the other side. Vigorous disagreement, both within and between parties, is essential in a functioning democracy. But democracy also requires at least some level of mutual comprehension. No matter where people are in the political spectrum, they ought to know whom they're fighting with and what they're fighting about. And this was by Victoria Parker, who is a doctoral candidate of psychology at Wilfrid Laurier University. All right. No matter where people are on the political spectrum, they ought to know whom they're fighting with and what they're fighting about. Yeah, great line. I just I think that's really insightful. And one thing that struck me with the example of um, the defunding the police, it's not simply a matter of not realizing uh, what percentage of the other group has a particular opinion about the issue. It's also defining terms. So even if you would ask someone who's even slightly in favor of defunding the police, you'd have to clarify what they mean by that, right? Um, which, as you and I know, Taylor, it was it was more like reshuffling money so that people could be involved in situations that needed intervention, but might be better served with someone um, who is a counselor or someone trained to help people with mental health issues. The other thing would be, even if you'd find people who would say, I am for abolishing the police altogether. From what I read, I never found anyone who thought that meant there would be no law enforcement. They simply meant kind of, we need to reconfigure and start over. Let's not maybe change the title. Let's not call it police anymore. I, I don't remember hearing anyone say, I prefer anarchy and we all, <laughs> we all control ourselves. So even simply the defining of terms uh, is an important part of the conversation also. And it just seems that there's kind of a lack of effort on it, it, it's easier to fight against and oppose these extreme fringe views rather than do the work of actually, like you said, asking those questions. And yeah. it's such a, for me personally, such a, a difficult thing to maneuver because a lot of the fringe views on either the left or the right could be seen as very dangerous, you know, were yeah. they to play out sure, would sure. be dangerous. And so how do we, how do we fight against those fringe views, make sure that those ideas don't come to fruition or become more mainstream, but also treat people as reasonable humans. That's the hard part for me. Well, and that's the power of the focus on particular individuals, even if they are on the fringe, they do exist, right? They're not made up. And so it's not as if presenting one particular voice is lying, so to speak, because the voice is there. It's just that if you don't get a well, uh, kind of a well fleshed out representation of all the voices, then it does become deceptive only because it's not telling the entire truth. Right. Yeah, it's possible to tell the truth and be deceptive by not telling the entire truth. Mm -hmm. I, th I think uh, the other thing that came to mind with this is that the truth is, is an interesting thing in that we all say that we value truth and mm -hmm where that can, that valuing of truth can kind of break down is, is when there's someone that on our side that, that agrees with our stance that tells 90% truth all the time, but that 10% I'm willing to let slide because they're saying things that I want them to say that I agree with, but 
the other side can point to that 10% of, of fabrication and disregard the rest of the truth. And I guess I don't really know which, which is right. Well, and Taylor, I think the reality is both sides are rightly bothered when they know that the other side is misrepresenting the either their personal stance or the stance of them as a group, but there's some type of straw man argument being created. Both sides are bothered when this happens. It, what I find interesting is that we, we often excuse our own constructions because we think the point we're trying to make is so important that it's justified in this moment. And I think it would go back to the golden rule, right? Treat others as you'd like to be treated. Well, I'm just wondering as I think if, if people read this article, I, I don't necessarily think that it's this um, going to provide this huge realization that maybe people didn't have an awareness of. Cause I think we all are liable to be a little bit lazy in our approach. We, we figure out what we believe, how we think things should be done. And then we want to, as it used, uh, fight against these caricatured versions, caricatured versions of people, um, just because that's like a little bit easier to do. Mm-hmm. Um, do people want this information? Even do they want to know what this article has to say? That's a good question, Taylor. Yeah. I mean, it's an opportunity to ask ourselves, do we genuinely love truth? Yeah. It can be unsettling. Because I don't think that this is, is something that I didn't know. If you would have really asked me, I probably also would have been, a little bit off on the percentages. You know, if you asked me what, uh, mm-hmm. what a conservatives think about this, what a liberals think about that, I probably would have, uh, given higher percentages than, than what actually exists. I would hope not as high a percentage as what mm-hmm. some of this showed where it was commonly, you know, two to almost three times higher than, than what people estimated. But I don't know. I, I think that I'm, I'm so guilty of some of these things because I care so deeply about, um, my causes that I'm, willing to, to slide on certain things that I would, would point the finger at other people when they're sliding. So we've talked about this before, just the importance of trying to have a variety of input in your life and not living in a bubble. The classic example of this has been how everyone overestimates the pervasiveness of crime, because if you watch that, and this, I should say, not everyone, people who watch TV news. I think this study was first done when it was still the main networks. Um, you would often, whether it was local or national, there was the old phrase, if it bleeds, it leads. So if there was a horrific crime story, it got a lot of coverage. And it turns out everybody then began overestimating how dangerous it was when they stepped outside their door. And even as violent crime was falling across the nation, people were increasingly concerned about it. Um, I think the same thing happens with uh, the concern about child abductions. I did quite a bit of reading on this last year. And while there are clearly abductions that happen, and that's a problem, stranger abductions are remarkably rare, like the classic kind of kidnapping. But I think if you'd pull most people, they think they're a lot more common than they are because when they do happen, they get a lot of coverage, Mm -hmm. understandably so. Uh, It's just that it ends up distorting our view of reality. So, so children aren't being snatched up and sold on Wayfair at a, as high a level as what we <laughs> Oh, we could do a whole episode of this, Taylor. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's it, pretty fascinating. You know, 800,000 people a year go missing. That's the stat that gets misrepresented over and over again, because like 95% of them show back up in a couple of days. Mm-hmm. I, 
sorry, I don't want to get sidetracked like this. I'd love to, for us to talk about this in an episode. But yeah, the actual real cases, the kind that keep parents up at night, are remarkably small, but you wouldn't know it because of the kind of coverage that they get because they are a big deal when they do happen. Mm-hmm. So I found a website called perceptiongap.us. And you can take a quiz on their website where you are, you are going to estimate what you think other people's opinions are about things. And then it will show where your estimation lines up with reality. So they've got some stuff posted already. And I'm going to give you a couple examples of how the perception gap works. So this first one, they polled Democrats and asked them what they think, where they think Republicans stand on certain issues. And then they'll contrast that with where Republicans actually self-report and stand on those issues, right? So here's the first one. Properly controlled immigration can be good for America. Democrats assume just over 50% of Republicans felt that way. Turns out it's about 85% of Republicans. Mm -hmm. Racism still exists in America. Democrats thought about 50% of Republicans would agree with that claim. Turns out it's about 80% of Republicans. Uh, I'll give you two more. Many Muslims are good Americans. Democrats estimated that about 40% of Republicans would agree with that, but it turns out it's about 70% of Republicans. Then finally, the government should do more to stop guns getting into the hands of bad people. Democrats assumed once again about 40% of Republicans would agree with that, but it was more about more like 65% of Republicans. So let's go the other way. This will be Republicans estimating where Democrats stand on issues and then the Democrats' actual views. First one, uh, most police are good people. Republicans thought that only about 45% of Democrats would agree with that, but it was more like 85% of Democrats agreed with that. I'm proud to be an American, though I acknowledge my country's flaws. Republicans thought just over 50% of Democrats would be proud to be Americans. It turns out it's more like 80 to 85%. I'll give one more. No, actually, I'm going to give two more. It's important that men are protected from false accusations pertaining to sexual assault. Republicans thought around 40% of Democrats would agree with that, but that was right around 75% of Democrats agreed with that. Last one, the U.S. should have completely open borders. Uh, I'm sorry, do you disagree with the statement that the U.S. should have completely open borders? Republicans thought only about uh, 35 to 40% of Democrats would land there. It's actually about 70%. And this website goes on and on. It'll show you uh, where the widest perception gaps are. And like I said, you can take a quiz on here yourself just to see how you're doing, which I haven't done yet, but that's my next. Taylor, maybe we can do that report back on the next episode. That would be cool. I would, yeah, I would love to um, quiz myself on that because I, I suppose I would be someone that would fancy myself as trying to find these middle grounds between some of these issues. And um, I suspect that I would be much further off just after having read this article and heard some of the things that you've talked about uh, that I would be further off than, than what I would be comfortable with. And I say be comfortable with because I'm going to continue to be engaging in conversations, whether that's uh, 
private conversations with friends and family, Mm -hmm. um, or like larger scale conversations where we, you know, we're on a podcast and have many listeners. And so it's like, if, if you're going to take that responsibility and I could, I could say this of other people too, if you're going to have the responsibility of being on Instagram, uh, being on Facebook, being on Twitter and having hundreds, if not thousands of followers that are going to be seeing the things that you're posting, then I think it's important to have an accurate picture of who you disagree with and why you disagree with them. And also the picture of like, oh, maybe you don't disagree with them as much as you think, because we all are at this place right now where we can put things out into the world that is going to either further a divide or, or try to bridge it. So it's a big responsibility for even the average person. I wonder how much of it is guilt by association, whether it's being associated with people or with ideas, um, because it, it can be a shorter process. If you feel like you can connect a bunch of dots with someone and you feel like you've got them figured out rather than doing the hard work of diving into nuance. An example I saw recently, anytime you see vaccination stuff come up, it seems like it gets pretty volatile or pretty divisive right away. Like there must be two camps of people, anti-vax and pro-vax. But I saw a number of articles in the last couple of weeks of interviews with people, professionals, uh, often people in the medical field who had gotten vaccinated and were pro-vaccine, but were opposed to mandates. Mm. And there almost seemed like there was no space in the conversation for that kind of approach. Like I would read the article and depending on who was writing it, it would be anti-vaxxer, blah, 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 blah. And then you'd read the article and you'd find out they're not anti-vaxxers. They have an opinion about mandates for political or constitutional reasons, typically. That's the kind of thing that really frustrates me. And I, I wish we had more room to be able to get rid of this kind of two category or two camp approach to perspectives and allow for there to be in between ground. Immigration is a great one. Mm-hmm. You, know, you have immigrants, you have refugees, you have people um, like I saw articles recently of some cities and the headlines where they're allowing non-citizens to vote. And it was a sky is falling kind of headline. Well, when you looked at it, this was like people with a green card or people who had gone through the system or immigrants who were in process to become citizens. Like it was a very narrow group of immigrants and the kind of group that at least to me, it actually made sense. They're in, they are invested in wanting to be citizens here. They're in the system. They're going through the process. Um, let's, Let's let them be a part of what's going on. And I'm, I'm sorry, I'm remembering all the details for that. It was actually more, um, more constructive than that even. Mm. But I didn't find a single headline that even suggested that there was something thoughtful to be wrestled with. It was more like either, uh, either this meant every non-citizen was now suddenly going to have free access to the polls um, well, no, that that was the alarmist thing that came with it. And it just wasn't the case. And I, I don't know, Taylor, I don't know if it's if we don't have the time to do the research or if we don't want to invest the time to understand things. I'm not sure what it is. I, I think when you had said, you know, if it leads, it leads. What is interesting as I've tried to, I guess, take a more balanced approach to some of these issues, whether that's uh, reading from a variety of sources, listening to a variety of sources, watching a variety of sources, whatever it might be, 
is the one frustrating thing is that, and I think this can happen like an easy one to point to might be um, say an article on, on Omicron and COVID and here, here the, the headline is just these alarm bells where if you only read that headline, you're thinking I'm going to die any second. Right. And <laughs> then the further down you get, they might talk about the mildness of the symptoms and yes, it can still overwhelm the system, uh, the healthcare system in certain ways, but it, it gets more nuanced. You have to read it yet. The headline is still that alarm bell type of thing. Mm-hmm. And it does take that extra work. So I don't even want to say that those articles that have the alarm bell headlines are reporting incorrectly necessarily. I would just say that they're right. doing us a disservice by having those crappy headlines. So dude, my newsfeed every day, I see multiple articles where one will say, Omicron is just not that big of a deal. This is basically the cold. And the next one will go, oh, but in this other country, they're discovering these things and it looks nasty. Okay, if I'm only going to read one of those throughout the day, I'm going to develop a pretty strong opinion. But I see two or three of them a day with those competing headlines. So now I'm recognizing, uh, okay, there's sure looks like there's some individual cases where this looks pretty serious. It also clearly isn't Delta. Okay, I can hold both of those at the same time. The the other thing that I'm seeing is, oh, shoot, Taylor, I had two really good examples. And now the second one has gone out of my mind. They both had to do with, oh, oh, how soon will the pandemic end? Mm. I'll see multiple articles a day saying either we're a couple months away from done or we're in for a three to five year long haul. Okay, if my bubble only gives me one of those and and you take one of those and add to it either a sense that Omicron is no big deal or it's a really serious deal that's being underplayed for some reason, you could end up worlds apart in how you perceive what's happening right now. There's so many things that I think I just need to need to revisit so many topics that I've had discussions about um, that I just need to go back and and kind of reconfigure maybe how I think about it. And I don't necessarily know because I've spoken so heavily on some of my convictions and things like that, that I'm going to have to alter my convictions or the way that I view truth and justice and all those different types of things. I don't necessarily think that by going back and reassessing my position on some of that stuff, that my position will change, but I think how I view and value the opposition will change. And I think in some ways that's kind of comforting. Like I can still believe the things that I believe, but I need to understand um, that there are people of value on the other side that maybe aren't as loony as what I think they are, or or the majority is not loony. There are loonies, but maybe not as many as what I think. No, that's a great point. There are loonies. Yeah. I, I don't want to ignore that fact. And there are people who are quite extreme. I think a good example of what you just talked about was Southside Rabbis podcasted probably five or six episodes on critical race theory. And it was a, a something that I had read up on a fair amount. And so I, I had kind of a um, an academic idea of what was being discussed. And I had some frustrations about what was being properly discussed and what wasn't, at least as I could see it. What I loved about their format was they had guests on with a variety of opinions and in a long form format. They talk and they talk and they were able not just between themselves to work out some things, but just for me to be able to listen to it. It's 15 hours of podcast time from a variety of perspectives from qualified people. And yeah, you 
you walk away going, okay, there's elements that could concern me depending where they go. There's other elements I really like because I think it's giving some truth about the world. And it, it turns out if I'm listening carefully to what's being said and taking the time to, to invest not just in one narrow perspective of it, but multiple people explaining um, not just how it came to be and how they understand it to be, but how they see it working out culturally. Oh man, it, it's a it's a much more rich field for discussion. Once again, not that I would agree with everything, but there's a whole lot of room there to separate wheat from chaff and do good stuff with the wheat. It's funny you bring up critical race theory. I don't know if you saw clips of James Lindsay on Dr. Phil or not. Uh, I don't think I did. Okay, so James Lindsay is a uh, He's an atheist, but he has, for some reason, really concerned himself with uh, critical race theory and its presence in uh, churches or schools. And um, he's not, I don't believe, academically trained in the study of critical race theory, but he was invited on to Dr. Mm -hmm. Phil's show this past week and um, was on there for a few minutes just railing against critical race theory. But my understanding is after having read read up on some of the more academic takes on the things he was saying is he didn't say anything. He was just running around in circles. Uh And um, unfortunately there's a lot of people that will see something like that and they will base their judgment of critical race theory off of some of the things that he had said or all the things that he had said. And I guess my issue wouldn't even be necessarily that they would wouldn't like something like critical race theory as much as it is that they arrived at that position um, through a, a dishonest process. Yeah. I, I discovered not just in my reading, but in listening to that podcast and some others that were dealing with critical race theory, that a lot of the kind of pop culture figureheads that are the target of, of the concerns aren't actually doing critical race theory. In fact, a lot of the people who are, in academia with critical race theory are frustrated by how it's presented because it's not what it actually is. And and it turns out those distortions that creep in, I find myself deeply concerned about a lot of the distortions that have crept into it. I mean, there's obviously things out there. It's almost like any idea, Taylor, even if it's got some good at its core, it can be taken in bad directions. It clearly, there are clearly examples of it going in bad directions, but that's a different discussion than trying to figure out what can be done with um, kind of some of the premises and, and once again, being discerning about it. And it was good to know that, that Christians who love God and faithfully read the Bible were willing to engage on some of these things in the pursuit of truth. Um, and it's not they necessarily ended up agreeing, but man, that kind of robust give and take with a real attempt to kind of know and be known, there's a lot to be said for that. Yeah. A give and take, that seems like a very important thing. And it's, it's a difficult thing to figure out how to do. And I've seen this play out again. I'll go back to social media where on Instagram, I, I will share something and, and I was, I was losing many nights. Uh, I had many sleepless nights during the, the case, the police brutality cases, the murder of George Floyd, all those different things, sharing uh, my ideas of, of justice and, and what we should what we should be doing about these issues that are prevalent and the reactions that I was getting from some people was, was really, really disheartening. And, Mm -hmm. um, unfortunately they now probably based on some of the things that I've shared in the past, uh, maybe it's about vaccines. 
they have probably attributed me to be a, a, a far left individual, which mm-hmm. is just not the case. Um, right. And so it's, it's trying to figure out how do we accurately present ourselves without burning ourselves out? Like, why do I have to share every little bit of who I am on social media? I, I right. shouldn't have to. But if I'm going to share fractions of it, I need to understand the risk that's associated with that, which it leaves a lot of room for people to assume that they know things about me that they don't. Mm-hmm. And then that puts the responsibility on the other party. If they want to be honest, they have to say, well, just because Taylor posted this about something does right. not necessarily mean that he thinks this about something. Yeah. And it really is a give and take. We have to figure that out moving forward. You know, Taylor, here's a great example for you is um, if you would post on Facebook, Black Lives Matter, because you're in solidarity about your concerns about the way racism has an ongoing influence in the United States and that there are cases, uh, at least some cases of police brutality that seem to have a racist component to them. And you're deeply concerned and you're, you're showing solidarity for someone to conclude from that, that you're a Marxist. Would just be a terrible disservice to you. At best, you would hope they would respond if they had concerns and say, Taylor, I'm just curious, Uh, like, are you all in in the movement? Are you what? Where are you at? And then it gives you a chance to provide whatever kind of explanation or nuance you need. But like you said, I think it's just too easy. We look at a fragment that we show about something that occurs in the broader context of our lives, which is hard to display and social media format. And I think maybe what we're all called to do for each other is to rein in this tendency to, to try to try to connect every dot we can to construct a full-blown person from this small piece that we saw and take the time to go, I'd like to understand better where that's coming from in you. And who knows, maybe social media is just never going to be the place that that kind of thing can happen. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know that it is because it has to be that perfect give and take. You have to be operating with people that have proper intentions. And just because of the sheer numbers of people involved in things like Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, you're going to get you're going to get people that just don't have those pure intentions and and want to have this type of discourse. And I guess the other thing that that I need to make sure that I'm doing that I would encourage other people to do is not just um, break down an individual and what, what you think they believe or what they've told you they believe and think, but also understanding the definitions of the things Mm -hmm. that you may be trying to critique or things that you might be trying to defend. So if you're going to critique Marxism, what is Marxism? If you're going to critique critical race theory, can you define critical race theory? Um, I'm trying to think of some other examples, but we have to understand those definitions if we're going to attribute those those uh, definitions to people. Yeah. So here's a fascinating example. Marx was convinced that societies changes through economic forces, basically, right through the haves and have nots had to do with economics. Critical race theory has nothing to do with economics. <laughs> it's one example where you go, actually, I think you might mean it has a Hegelian influence because of the dialect, maybe. Or like there's not a clean connection there, but because it's a buzzword that associates so many things, it, it's a handy shortcut to, uh, I want to say, inflame a, a conversation. I don't always think it's helpful. And it, it turns out you could actually argue, I don't think it's Marxist and still have problems with its foundation. Let's just let's make sure we have clarity about what that foundation is and let something be 
um, critiqued or applauded on its own merits. Mm-hmm. I actually, a couple of months ago, Taylor had a, a good example from a Facebook post on how ideally these kind of conversations unfold. I had posted some updates from our local hospital about COVID patients that were in the hospital, that were in ICU and that were on ventilators. And they had a graph showing the difference between vaccinated and unvaccinated. And I, I had just posted it, FYI, good information for people to know. Well, one person asked, um, are those numbers reflective of people who were put in Munson because they had COVID or it turns out they have COVID, they're just being treated for something else? Great, Great question. question. Great question. Let's talk. Let's see if we can figure that out. Second person said, I would like to de- see a distinction between people who are unvaccinated, vaccinated and people who have had COVID and thus have whatever type of immunity follows from having COVID. Also, an excellent point. I have no idea what those numbers are and how that pans out in terms of ICU and ventilators. And so then as people began to weigh in, they were sharing different articles. They were having a conversation. Nobody got mad at each other. Everybody treated those questions seriously and recognized pretty quickly there is more information we need to know about this kind of thing. And I, there was actually a, a friend waited on that thread and applauded everybody and said, thank you mm-hmm. for having this kind of conversation on social media. I would love it if that was the way we could approach just so many things is being willing to take the time um, and dig into those types of things and just respect each other in the process. Mm-hmm. And, and ask questions. I mean, there were questions being asked and I think that's the, the sign of a healthy conversation is when mm-hmm. there's questions being asked, making sure you're asking questions of the person that you disagree with yep. and in honest questions, genuine questions, not trying to have a uh, aha, I got you moments, but giving them a platform to share and answer those mm-hmm. questions. And then also asking questions, I think of yourself too, mm-hmm. consistently. Why do I think this? Um, because there, there are many things that I am the more I learn about them. What is that? What is that law called? The more you learn, um, you realize the less, you know, but, but Uh, the experts are the people who just, just now read an article on it and they think they know everything. You asked me too fast. Uh, I can't remember the name of it. It's come up a bunch of times in Uh, in conversations that I've had recently. Um, but yeah, that's, that's really, really important to have in a healthy dialogue. And Mm -hmm. I'm curious moving forward in 2022, if, if this, um, what I think is, more dangerous than just having opposing ideas is this inability to talk about why we have opposing ideas and just Mm -hmm. attacking each other um, oftentimes for no good reason. And so I hope that 2022 can bring kind of a change on that front. And I'm going to try to figure out how best I can contribute to, to some of that stuff too. Yeah. One, one would hope that would be at least one way in which 2022 can be better than 2021. Was there anything else? I I guess I would like to ask you, what are some ways, because I think you're well-versed, uh, in having oftentimes difficult, uncomfortable conversations with people, what are some strategies you use to make sure that you're kind of getting a, a more full picture of some of these these issues that pop up in culture and society? Um, what can you kind of direct people to maybe maybe do? Oh, that, uh, so I'll offer some ideas from uh, as a person who does this imperfectly, of course. Um, One thing I do when I see stuff online that seems um, like huge breaking news, either too bad to be true or too good to be true, or this changes everything kind of stuff. I just, I start to Google it and you don't have to use Google, obviously, by that I simply mean, I start to find out who all is talking about this. Is everybody in agreement on this? What are things that I don't know that I should know? 
I'll add two more things to that Facebook thread that I mentioned for our discussion. You'd also want to know for those who were vaccinated, how long ago had they been vaccinated? Because the vaccine wanes, right? You, it would be ideal to know how many people had comorbidities, uh, both vaccinated and unvaccinated. I just saw an article today that the vast majority of vaccinated people who become really seriously ill or die have at least four comorbidities. Okay, that's good to know, right? So mm-hmm. part of it is with all of these things, trying to step out of the original source that I have at either, hopefully that source has original links embedded. That's actually to me, Taylor, kind of a red flag. If I read an article with a lot of, uh, if I say inflammatory information, I just mean it kind of gets your heart racing and blood boiling either for good or for bad. And there's no easy way to link from that article to whatever source they're referencing. That usually gives me cause for concern. I have found far too many times that if I have to find that source for myself without an easy link, they have often misrepresented something. Usually it's a study of some sort. So I I would just say when it comes to stuff that you read online, or for goodness sake, if you hear it in a YouTube video, um, one of the downsides of YouTube is that you're often not going to stop the video and look something up. And you're going to get heavily influenced by the general message of the video without then going and doing follow-up work. You and I were just talking to us last week about a very popular podcast or YouTube personality who did a really long interview, but it turned out when you started to look up the details later, the whole thing basically fell apart. But you wouldn't think about it because just listening to the podcast or the video gives you um, an impression that really lingers. So that that's my biggest thing when it comes to getting new sources is track down, read other sources, please get the news aggregate that brings you news sources from all over the world and where you're allowed to choose different perspectives. I think everyone knows by now Google caters to what you click on. So Google's not an ideal source for that, but there's lots of news aggregate sites that will keep you in the know. I I think that is super crucial. Yeah. The second thing I would just say in conversation with each other is take the time to get to know people or to better understand them. Like if they say something and you think, no way, do you really think that? You might want to find out if you maybe they struggled to choose the right words and just said something in a really unfortunate way that doesn't represent what they meant. And if you ask them, they're going to go, oh, crap, I need to change that. My bad. Uh, maybe we have our own baggage where we're filtering things people say. And so either way, we want to go back to the person before we reach conclusions and go, um, did you mean to convey this? Because this is how this comes across. And if they say, absolutely, I did. Huh. Um, What has led you to those conclusions? Like there's ways to take time to get to understand the person you're talking with before we just kind of drop in and blow stuff up. I'm, I like the analogy. I've used it before, probably not on this podcast, but a gambling movie Mel Gibson was in with Jodie Foster on the casino boat. Mm. Uh, I can never remember the name of it. Uh, I love the scene at the beginning where he joins a gambling table and he promises to lose for an hour. But all he's doing during that whole hour is reading everybody and getting to understand them so that when he does play, he wins. There's something to be said about entering into conversations and quote unquote losing for an hour. 
I don't even like that term because it makes it sound like somehow you stepped into something and been a failure. It's simply a time for observation. Mm-hmm. Read the room first. <laughs> Read the room and try to get to know the participants. And then when you think you've got a pretty good handle on who people are, where they're coming from, then it's the time to step in. And, and as opposed to the gambling scenario, winning isn't necessarily the goal. It's just at that point, there's there's a connection point and you've established a way to try to enter into a conversation that is productive rather than divisive, hopefully. What, what about you, Taylor? So I think um, the, one of the approaches that that has actually given me a bit of comfort and has, I think it's in some ways related to this, you know, hour of observation or hour of losing as, as much as we might not like the sound of that is understanding that you don't have to figure it all out in that initial conversation. You don't have to convince someone in that initial conversation or, or even subsequent conversations. It's not a, it doesn't have to be an all or nothing type of type of conversation every time you see that person that you disagree with. And that was, that was another area that I got really burned out on is that when I was going home and I was seeing relatives that we had differing opinions on the things that were happening in the country and the world, I would leave at the end of the weekend. And these places that I once found uh, to be restful were no longer that they were stressful. I felt like I was going into battle sometimes each time I was there. And that was as much my fault that I felt that way as it was anybody else's. And so once I figured out that it's not a zero sum game just in that weekend to convince, you know, a racist uncle that George Floyd was murdered and that he, that it was an, uh, an unjustified killing. Um, but under having a, deep, meaningful conversations where we can, like you said, just almost spend more time listening than talking. And you're just helping to provide an environment where real conversations can happen in the future too. And I think that that's where, that's where real change happens. And so that has been of a major comfort to me is take a deep breath. It's probably not something that you need to have figured out in the next 15 minutes with this person that you're pitted against. Um, it, it's really, really helpful to have that understanding, I think. And then yeah. uh, all the things that you said too have been, have, have worked for me when I've taken the time to exercise, exercise them. And, and dare I say, Taylor, it's also possible that we don't have to enter into every conversation. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes it's okay to just walk on and go maybe another time, but now it's yep. not today. Yeah, that's, that's true too. That's something that I have put into place in my life and I think that we can convince ourselves that if we're not talking about it, if it's not at the forefront of what we're presenting to people, that we don't care about something as, as deeply as we should. And that, that can bring along some guilt. And I felt that guilt. Well, I'm, I'm not talking about it anymore because I'm tired. Um, well, I think it's okay. I have to figure out how to maneuver through that guilt because just cause I'm not talking about it every second of every day, doesn't mean that I don't care deeply about truth and justice and all those other things. Or Taylor, it might be that you've spent a lot of time talking about it and there's nothing productive. There's no fruit coming from it. Why would you keep doing that? Mm-hmm. Right. Maybe, it, maybe it's just an opportunity to rest and then refocus your energy somewhere else. And and that also is not a failure. Uh, that's probably the better part of wisdom. And I say that as someone who has really mm-hmm. struggled to find that better part of wisdom. Yeah. Well, I think this was a, a really good conversation and Anthony, I'll have you, um, 
If you could say that link one more time where your people can take a quiz and find out how poorly they view other people. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'll also <laughs> include the link to the article we discussed. Hey, maybe we should do a poll to see how people view us and then we'll give our opinions about how we view us and we can compare that. That would be cool. Yeah. I would uh, okay, like so that a lot. The website is perceptiongap.us. And the website is called uh, just the Perception Gap, I think. And it's put on by a group called More in Common. Excellent. Well, hopefully this was helpful as Anthony and I kind of bounced some things off of one another, uh, spurred by this article where I believe it's titled conservatives and liberals are wrong about each other. And so hopefully this provides a little bit of comfort, but also some ways for you to move forward through 2022 and actually trying to either rest from conversation or um, have conversations that can actually make a difference and and learning how to value other people and and realizing that yeah the loony bin exists but it might be a little smaller than we think. <laughs>